All right, another week, another church, another letter headed to Sardis this weekend, Revelation 3, 1 to 6. Go ahead and get there. I'm going to read the first two verses and we're going to get to work. You guys good with that? All right, let's do it. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. In case you haven't noticed, Jesus is not operating on the, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all principle. Okay? It's not a, it's not a value for, for Jesus. Jesus is not so much about elephants in the room going unnoticed and undiscussed. He's addressing the issues here. What we're finding out from all these letters in Revelation is what we see here in Sardis is that Jesus is willing to warn you and wound you with the truth if it means that you wake up and return to him. Why? Because he loves us that much. He loves his church that much. To not stay in a state of deadness or sin or unrepentance. And so we see that Jesus has spoken the truth, the hard truth, some of these churches, with all authority and love, he contends with every single church. And he does so here with Sardis. I know your works. You have this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have this great reputation of being alive. There's this rumor going around about you, Sardis, that you're alive, but you're not. You're actually dead. Jesus just called Sardis out. Just outed Sardis. Totally exposed him, right? I mean, this is like when the great Gatsby's real past was discovered. This is like discovering Millie Vanilli had been lip syncing that whole time. (laughs) Totally exposed. This is like finding out Sammy Sosa was corking his back. Mark McGuire was doping. The golden era of baseball, totally exposed. This is what's happening here with Sardis. Sardis is naked right now. Totally exposed. I know your works. I know the good, the bad, the incomplete. My eyes are wide open. I see right through the veneer. I see right through the facade. This had to have been hard for this church to hear. No? Is it hard to have a conversation about you? How many of you are comfortable with having a conversation about you? This would have been hard for this church to hear. Anytime the truth of who we really are is realized, talked about, confronted, maybe even exposed like it is here, that's not easy to face, is it? How many of you squirm like I do when I'm the topic of discussion? It's not easy. And here's the reason why it's hard for us. Because we all work really, really hard on our reputations. Sardis had the reputation of what? Being alive. I don't know what your reputation is. What reputation do you have? What have you worked toward? A reputation of what? And beyond that reputation and facade, what is the actual truth about who you are? We work really hard on our reputations. We all engage in image management to some degree. Everything from our Facebook pages to our Pinterest-inspired houses and parties that we throw, to how we dress, to how we present ourselves, To what we selectively choose to share and not share about ourselves, we are all very concerned about our image, about our reputations. And Jesus just shatters this for Sardis and for us. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. 
instead of living behind a facade and a reputation, there's encouragement and true joy in the truth. And can I just encourage us based on this simple truth that Jesus just knows. He knows. He sees these churches with omniscient eyes, eyes like a flame of fire. He knows. He sees all these churches. And he sees all of us for who we really are. Can I just encourage us to get off the treadmill of image management and the exhausting work of constantly propping up and patching our fragile facades? Can we just step away from that game? Can we just step away from it? Can we step away from that and come into the freedom of dealing with the painful realization of our brokenness, our neediness, our sinfulness, who we really are? And may that be matched up with and followed with the beautiful and life-giving truth of God's acceptance and steadfast love toward us in Christ. May our neediness match his grace. And can we live in that realm instead of the realm of facades and reputations and image management? And I would just love to have a vision for all of our communities around here. All of our Bible studies, all of our small groups, all of our counseling sessions, to the variety of different friendships and interactions we have here. Can we all strive to ditch the pretension and ditch the posturing? Instead of hiding, can we be honest and authentic and grace-centered so that all of our communities, so that Bethel Church can be a place where it's okay to not be okay? And are really any of us okay? Are you okay? Really? Am I okay? We're not. No. Sardis heard the painful truth of who they really are. You're not okay, Sardis. What's your reputation? What's your image? When people think about you, what do they think? And does your practice and does your heart match that? For Sardis, it didn't. You know, transformation can never happen. True heart transformation Spiritual growth, Christ-likeness, the hard process of transformation can never happen if the truth of who we really are never meets the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. The truth of who we really are needs to meet the truth of what Jesus has done and who he is. That's where transformation takes place. And a lot of you guys are playing the game of image management and propping up your reputations. And I'm saying come out from that death. And be okay with saying that you're not okay and revel in the grace of God. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're not Sardis. Now, what does he mean that you have the reputation of being alive? Well, it's hard. It doesn't say specifically. He just says you have the reputation of being alive. So what was that reputation? It's not explicit in the text. But what do we see from Sardis that we see from the other churches? Or what do we don't see from Sardis? We don't see some of the major failings that existed in some of the other churches, right? There's no, no, no sexual immorality, no mention of idolatry, no mention of cultural conformity at all, no false teaching being believed, no negative influences being tolerated, no Nicolaitans, no Jezebels. It seems that some of the common things that have plagued the other churches aren't here. No mention of them. And maybe because they haven't assimilated to the culture, Maybe because they're not failing like some of these other churches, they have the reputation of being alive. Maybe because of what's absent from Sardis, they have the reputation of being alive. These blatant failures in some of these other churches aren't present here. And that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. But the problem with that being the litmus test for life and vibrancy 
meaning what's absent or what you're not failing in, the problem with that being the litmus test for life and vibrancy is that God doesn't view health. God doesn't view vibrancy. God doesn't view maturity of a Christian community merely in terms of what's absent. He doesn't. The Apostle Paul describes new life in Christ this way. Put off, put on. There are certain things that we need to be putting off, rejecting, not doing. But God's also called us to a life of put on and pursuit. Rhythms that we need to walk in, things that we need to pursue. So it's not just what's absent. God's called us to a life of pursuing him. Don't do certain things, but practice these certain things too. And it's not just behavior, it's heart attitudes as well. Put off, put on. And this is where the reductionistic preaching of moralism has really failed us. And some of you have grown up in churches like this. Preaching and teaching that describes Christian maturity and holiness in terms of what we don't do falls short of the biblical picture of maturity and health. See, we've not just been saved from something to stay away from some things. We've been saved to something. We've been saved unto something. We've been saved first and foremost by Christ unto a relationship with God. We've been called into a covenant relationship with God by his grace, a renewed right relationship with him. That's first off. But we've also been called to a life of mission, community, service, learning. We've not just been saved from something, friends. We've been saved to something, to a vibrant relationship with God. And the fruit of that as we consider our head, heart, and hands as we move out into the world and our relationships. Mission, community, service, love. Sardis has the reputation of being alive because they've kept themselves from some of the pitfalls of the other churches. But Jesus says to them in verse 2, I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Your works are not complete. Even though it seems they haven't fallen into blatant disobedience as a church, they are dead. So let me ask you, how are you gauging your spiritual health? Do you gauge your health in terms of what's absent? Well, I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm not doing what that person's doing. So I must be alive. Jesus kind of shatters that thinking for us here in Sardis. It's not just what's absent. What are you pursuing? Where's the fruit? Now, what does Jesus mean here by dead and how are they dead? Because the word dead in the New Testament is used very broadly. And it's not as hard or or very specific as like Paul's spiritually dead description in Ephesians 2.1, where we're all spiritually dead and we need by God's grace to be made alive to his cross, to his grace. We need to be awakened. We need to be born again. It's not that kind of deadness here. Deadness is broader here. They are dead in terms of being in the state of decline. They are barren. They're stagnant. They're inactive. There's a dullness here in Sardis. An indifference here. A passivity. Very little life. The batteries on the remote in Sardis are running low. You know how annoying that is? You sit down, try to turn your channels... Like, oh gosh, I got to get up and change my remote batteries. Like, where are those? I don't know. (laughs) Right? That's annoying. The batteries are low in Sardis. They've got like one bar on their 4G network in Sardis. Okay, that's not good. In terms of how they are dead, how how are they dead? So we see the the type of deadness is an inactive, stagnation, barrenness. But in terms of how they are dead, the text doesn't specifically say, so we have to do a little bit of work in the text. It doesn't specifically say. So we have to do a little bit of work. So as we've seen, in every letter there are promises. 
In every single one of these letters, there's promises. And a lot of the promises in these letters relates to specific things that are happening in the churches. So here's one of the promises to Sardis, verse 5. Look at the last half of verse 5. And the promise here might help us identify, or the promise, yeah, the promise helps us identify the problem. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the one who conquers, here's the promise. Jesus will confess the names of those who conquer before his father. So now we're trying to figure out how they are dead, what the problem is, because the text doesn't specifically say. And so we're leaning on the promise to try to figure that out. Now, I'm going to confess you before my father. Now, those words from Jesus closely match Jesus' words from Matthew 10, 32, and 33. I have the passage for you on the screen. It says this, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before who? My father, who's in heaven. See the matching here? But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father, who's in heaven. A lot of times the promises are there to what? Woo us to Christ. And so if the promise is, I'm going to confess you before my father, we desire that. What was probably the problem going on in Sardis? It seems that deadness in Sardis relates to this church acknowledging Jesus before others. Sardis, it seems like, is struggling with confessing Christ. Being publicly identified with Christ. And Jesus makes them this promise in verse 5 because the church in Sardis was tempted to avoid confessing Christ before men. That's what I think the deadness is. That's what I think the issue is here in Sardis. And as a community of witnesses called to be witnesses, there seems to be a deadness in their mission. And this is grieving the heart of Jesus who's called the faithful witness in chapter 1. Jesus is the faithful witness. And as a community of witnesses... This is grieving Jesus' heart. Why? Because he's not just saved us from something, he saved us to something. And one of those things is mission and identifying ourselves with Christ and engaging. Now, here's another clue for why we can assert that Sardis' problem was a gospel testimony issue. It mentions here, like in every letter, to the one who conquers. In every single letter, Jesus has this phrase, to the one who conquers, here's these promises. We've not yet unpacked that. So what does that mean? What does it mean to conquer? Like, how do you conquer according to Jesus, according to the book of Revelation? Here's how conquering happens in Revelation. Revelation 12, 11 says this. It really captures the idea of what it means to conquer. And they, his church, the faithful, the one who the promises are to, and they have conquered him, that's Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. This is what conquering means according to Jesus. This is how we conquer. Okay? So whenever you see conquer, think Revelation 12, 11. It involves two things. First is this. We conquer by belief in the blood of the Lamb. Conquering is something that Jesus has done by his own blood. We don't conquer anything. Jesus conquers. And our faith in Christ is the thing that attaches us to his victory. Who conquered? Us? Did we conquer Satan? No. We fall short. Always. Who doesn't fall short? Who conquered? Christ conquered. By what? The blood of the Lamb. His blood shed. His finished work. His life. His death. His resurrection. Jesus gained the victory. Conquering sin and Satan and death on our behalf. And our faith unites us to the work of Jesus. And our faith is what makes his victory become our victory. So how does conquering happen? First thing, believing in Christ. Clinging to Christ. His victory becomes our victory by faith. 
Faith unites us to the benefits of the finished work of Jesus. But what else does Jesus say? What is part of this belief? What is part of this faith? It's a maintaining belief and maintaining a public belief in the blood of the lamb. Our testimony. Notice the emphasis on testimony. How do we conquer? According to Revelation 12, 11, we conquer by faith in the work of Jesus and by not moving away from faith in Jesus, whether privately or publicly. Clinging to Christ always in our hearts and in our testimony. That's how conquering takes place. We conquer whether privately or publicly by trusting in Christ. We conquer by being identified with Jesus. When we say this, I'm with him. I trust in Christ. That's my savior. This is my song. This is my, this is my trajectory. This is my guy. I'm with him and I'm not moving away from that. I'm a Jesus guy. We believe privately, confess that publicly. Personal belief always translates to public identification. Always. There's no room for a privatized faith, but not not to express itself publicly. In conversations, in community, in relationships. And for Jesus, a kind of faith that testifies and identifies with him publicly, that's life. That's vibrancy. What's deadness in Sardis? Hiding. Being ashamed. That's deadness. Sardis is cowering when it came to testifying and identifying with Christ. And for whatever reason, they're avoiding being publicly identified with him. Now let's ask this question. Why would someone avoid being publicly identified with Christ? Why would someone avoid that? Why would someone cower there? You know, I don't think it takes anything more than just for us to search our own hearts and our own lives to come up with some good answers for that and come up with some examples for all of us. We know this temptation, don't we, Bethel? We know this temptation. We know how hard this is. Maybe it goes back for Sardis to the image management thing, the reputation thing, fear of man, human approval. Right? That seems to be at the heart of what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He seems to indicate that fear of man was at the root of fear of sharing Christ and being identified with him. Fear of man and human approval are very powerful, were very powerful in Jesus' day, are very powerful in our day as well. Fear of man, human approval. Anybody in here struggle with that? I do. I do. Think about all the persecution these churches are facing. Why no mention of persecution and patient enduring in Sardis? Every church almost. Jesus praises them for their patient endurance. Why no mention of that in Sardis? Maybe instead of a fear of man thing, it's a fear of the repercussions of identifying themselves with Christ. Maybe it's a fear of the consequences. Persecution. They were fearful as to what might happen to them if they publicly identified with Christ. And so they hid. So think about this. There was a large Jewish population in Sardis, huge. As you study the city, that's one of the things that they mention. And under Roman rule, if you were were Jewish and you identified yourself with first century Judaism, you could skip out on mandatory, uh, mandatory Caesar temple worship. What was the issue in Pergamum? They were a community of Christ followers. What was mandatory for them? Temple worship. Think about all the hardship that came in Pergamum from that, right? Antipas most likely killed because he denied Caesar worship. But if you distance yourself from Judaism, you'd have to come into this temple worship. They'd be forced. Maybe they wanted to avoid that difficulty. Maybe they were, maybe they were kind of hiding within Judaism 
to not break away from that so they can avoid all the temptations and the persecution and the difficulty from having to face mandatory Caesar worship. They were fearful to leave the comforts of that community. Think about this. Maybe they were fearful to leave the comforts of the community of first century Judaism. And that was hard, very hard, to come out from Judaism, to come out from this tight-knit social circle. This was true in Jesus' day. Look at what John said the issue was for some Jews who believed in the first century. John 12, 42 and 43. Think about coming out of this community. Look at what John says. Nevertheless, Many even of the authorities, some of the higher ups in the Jewish community believed in him. But for what? Fear of the Pharisees. They didn't confess him. For fear of being put out. For fear of being shunned. For fear of what they would say. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were some that were not identifying with Christ for fear of being shunned. Rejected by their community. And what was true in 1st century Asia Minor is true in 21st century Chicagoland. For some of us, it's very, very hard in our day to trust in Christ. The cultural, familial, social, professional pressures cause some to walk away from Christ because they'd rather deny him publicly than face the problems and persecution of being publicly identified with Christ. Do you know this struggle, friend? Is this your situation? Some of you have groups of friends and family that if you trusted Christ and came out with that, you'd be laughed at, made fun of, shunned, rejected. Some of you have already experienced this. Some of you, that's your experience right now. I know that fear. That fear caused me to suppress the truth of the gospel my entire life until the day God saved me. I just pushed that down. Why? For fear of being rejected by the community and the social circles that I spent my time in. You know, when I became a Christian in 2000, there were people that were really excited to see that day, and then there were some people who weren't really excited to see that day. I lost a lot of friends. My whole life changed. A lot of things were said about me behind my back. A lot of murmuring, gossip, talk. Tony's a Jesus freak. Bible thumper. All that. And that thing right there is causing some of us to cower and not trust in Christ. Fear. Human approval. This is what's happening in Sardis. Listen, we all want to be liked and well thought of. We all want to keep peace in our relationships, but we cannot get past the confrontational nature of the gospel. We can't. We can't. Jesus draws a line in the sand. You can't get past it. And we know this temptation for Sardis. But Jesus calls us to wake up. Wake up. Wake up from this dull faith. Wake up from this deadness. Wake up from a kind of belief in Jesus that remains hidden. A kind of trust in Christ that fears for others to know about it. A kind of connection to Christ that wants to be covered up. Jesus says, I've not found your works complete. He calls them to wake up from this deadness. Wake up. Come out of that fear. God has made us witnesses, and Sardis was dead in their witness. Now notice, what is the antidote? What is the antidote for this waking up? How do they wake up? So if you're like, okay, Sorcy, I see that. Here's my fear. Okay, maybe I've been hiding. I've been really, truly just not trusting in Christ because of fear being rejected. How do I get out of that? Because that's my heart. What's my hope? What's the antidote? Well, Jesus does his basic warning promise thing. But before he does that, 
there's this little description in verse 3. And how he, and here's a clue on how we wake up from our deadness. Start in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here it is. Here's the end. Here's the first thing. Before warnings, before promises. Remember. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. What's Jesus' antidote for waking up? Remember. Remember what? The gospel. The gospel. And so long as we're interpreting scripture with scripture, in Jesus' words in Revelation 2 with Matthew 10, I want to take this little phrase, remember then what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. And I want to compare it to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, because there's four words that match here. Jesus is calling us to remember the gospel, remember his grace. Look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Remember, what, what's Jesus' antidote? Remember then what you've received and heard, keep it and repent. Paul tells us the same exact thing, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you. What does Jesus say? Remember. I would remind you, Paul says, of what? The gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel, brothers. I preached it to you. What did Jesus say? Remember then what you what? Heard. The gospel's been what? Preached. It's been shared. Jesus says, remember then what you've received and heard. What does Paul say here? This is what you've received. You see that? That's three words already there that are matching up. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached it to you. You heard it. You received it. In which you stand and by which you're being saved. If you what? Hold fast. Paul has for them to hold fast the gospel. What does Jesus say? Remember then what you've received. Keep it. Keep it. Hold on to it. Hold fast. The word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Number one thing. Most important thing in the Christian life. Locking down, trusting in, keeping, remembering good news. Gospel. And what is the gospel according to Paul? Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Remember the gospel. Remember me. Remember me, my life. Remember me crucified. Remember me risen. Remember when that grace first came to you. Remember the good news. And we use this word gospel all the time, and I feel like we need to clarify. Gospel means good news about something Jesus has done about our sin and separation. The gospel is not good advice about something you can do about your own sin and separation. It's about something Jesus has done. He has fixed this problem for us. It's not, hey, you fix your situation. That's good advice. Gospel's good news. Good advice is about something you can do. Good news is about something that's already been done. Christ has done this. He's accomplished this. Jesus has lived the perfect life. Jesus died a sacrificial death. He rose again in victory over sin so that he might bring us back to a renewed right relationship with God. And Jesus is basically saying to this dead, dull church, wake up! Remember me. Remember my grace. Remember how I lived, how I died, how I rose again. Remember that I rescued you. You've heard this. You've received this. You've trusted this. Remember it again. Don't forget it. Don't move past it. Keep it. Hold on to it. Cling to it today. Trust in it right now. Repent of your deadness. Repent of your dullness of heart. 
Repent of your cowardice and claiming me and being identified with me. Confess me because I've loved you and rescued you from your sin and despair. And may that good news, may that truth make your heart go from this puny, little, dull thing to an enlarged, vibrant heart. That's what Jesus' antidote is to dullness. He doesn't first talk to them about their behavior. He talks to them about their heart. He wants to grow their affection for him. Remember then, Jesus helps them get out of their deadness, their indifference, their dullness by remembering. Look back to the cross. This is what we just did in communion. This is why Jesus gave us these two little pieces, these objects. Why? Because the gospel is being preached to us in object form, in symbol form. And every single week he told his church, To do this until I come. Why? To bring us back to the gospel. To bring us back to his grace. That is the antidote for dullness of heart. Look back at Christ. We need this, friends. We all need this. We all need what Jared Wilson in his book, Gospel Gospel Wakefulness, called gospel wakefulness. Okay, he said this. Here's gospel wakefulness. It means treasuring Christ more greatly and savoring his powerful more sweetly. A process, a thing we grow in, where we keep looking back and we keep growing in appreciation and love and affection for Christ. To treasure Christ more greatly and more sweetly than when? Before, than yesterday. And on Monday, than today. To keep growing in this. Growing deep appreciation for him. And I love how Jesus brings them back to the gospel. Because spiritual growth is not first a change in behavior. It's not first a change in action. It's a change in heart and affection. And so if you want to get people to start getting excited and, and, and come out of the darkness and be identified with Christ and to be confessing him, you don't say, hey, go and do that. You first need to grow their heart and affection for that thing. You know what you don't need to pull my arm about? I'm talking about the bears. Why? Because I bear down hard. I love the bears. You got to talk about football, I'm in. Talking about the Bears, game on. You don't got to pull my arm to do that. Why? Because I have an affection for the Bears. An idol, sure. Okay, we can talk about that. All right? You don't need to pull my arm to do that. So we're talking about these, these communities, these people coming out of the darkness and start talking about Jesus more, right? The answer is not, hey, go do that. No, the answer is this, remember May your heart enlarge with my grace. May I become in your affections and in your mind something so sweet and so great that the fear that you're experiencing and the opinions of all these other people would just fade and that you'd identify with me no matter what the consequences. That we'd grow in love for Christ from right here. That's what Jesus says. I love it. I love it. And the recipe for a fresh awakening to the good news is twofold. To be freshly aware of your brokenness, your neediness for his grace, and to be freshly awed by Jesus. To be freshly aware of your brokenness and neediness for his grace, your sinfulness, how desperate you are, and to be freshly awed by Jesus. Let me ask you, how sweet is Jesus in your mind and heart if you're just doing okay? I'm okay. I'm cool. I got this reputation. I'm alive. When you're alive, how much do you need Christ? When you're doing all right, how much do you need a savior? There's no desperation there. 
There's no desire there. How do you view yourself? Are you just a good dude? Are you just a sweet gal who just does all the right things? I behave, I obey, I'm not doing those bad things like those other people are doing. I'm on the right track, I'm pretty good. Well, when you're pretty good, you kind of need a savior. Really. And so much of our issue in gospel wakefulness and affection for Christ is a false view of who we are. And by God's grace, Jesus shatters this for Sardis. You have this reputation of being alive. You have this reputation of being an all right guy. Well, guess what? You're not. You're broken. You're sinful. You're needy. And you're beggarly. And if you wake up any day and you have a view of yourself that's anything less than that, it's a sham. On your best day, you're beggarly for the grace of God. And that truth right there is what creates transformation in the heart. When I'm really, really low and I see myself there, my Savior is lifted up high. He is glorious and he is amazing. When I'm okay, I kind of justify my sin. I'm not really that bad of a guy, right? I drag my Savior down. He becomes a mascot at that point, kind of someone who's off to the side. He's kind of there cheering me on in my good works and in my holiness. No, Jesus is a Savior. He rescues sinners, and he does so daily. Daily. Now, a couple of quotes for me that have really helped me with gospel wakefulness and being tied closely to the gospel from two dead dudes here. Again, so dead dudes really blessing us here this morning. One's from Spurgeon, one's from Stott. Spurgeon said this, Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of Christ's wounds. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of Christ's wounds. Sit, stay, camp yourself down at the cross and take a gaze at his finished work. Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery and the benefit of Christ and all of his wounds. Search the mystery, the joy of the gospel. It's a basic truth, but man, that well runs deep. It's a deep, deep well. Another one from Stott, he says this, the cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. Here's how we go in our busy culture. We zip past the gospel. We zip past the cross. We come in here, hour, 15 minutes. Maybe we might have a little touches in our week. And here's where our busyness really pushes against how gospel wakefulness happens. What does Stott say? You can't just zip past cross. You can't just zip past his work. I mean, you need to stop, pause, put yourself there long enough for the sparks of the power of the gospel to fall on you and for your heart to enlarge in. I do this, guys. I live a crazy, busy life, and I forget the gospel, and the good news becomes old news to me. And my heart grows indifferent. Why? Because I'm busy doing a million other different things than knowing God and knowing his love. And that is the center from which all that God has called us to live the Christian life flows from. And how do we get back to wakefulness? How do we wake up? We need to sit down and stop and pause. This is where the necessity of of scripture reading, prayer, being in communities and friends, others who are doing this as well, where we're talking about Christ, we're growing in gospel wakefulness together. We just cannot get past the old formula of scripture reading and prayer. We just can't. And two, let me, let me encourage you really quick. How do you approach the scriptures? Do the scriptures for you, do you have a view and a lens of scripture 
that shows you the grace of God and his amazing love on every page? Or is the main character of the scripture you? You come to the Bible like, hey, okay, Tony Sorcy, middle-class white dude, 2014, Northwest Indiana. What do you want me to do today, God? What do you got for me today? Where's my little chicken soup for my Christian soul so I can boost my energy up a little bit and go and do all that you've called me to do? Right? What is the scriptures? Is it man-centered or is it Christ-centered? When you come to the Bible, are you coming to see the ferocious, amazing love of God and a history filled with him redeeming sinners and showing his grace and faithfulness? Is that how you come to the scriptures? Maybe there's a dullness in heart because you think the Bible's about you and what you need to do. And you're approaching it in a man-centered way. You know how we need to approach the scriptures? In a Christ-centered way. That's how we need to approach the scriptures. So instead of trying to find you in the Bible, try to find Jesus. Try to find him. Try to find his grace. But we just can't get past that old formula. Bible reading prayer. And in prayer we say, God, my heart is dull. My affections are dull. Like I just prayed before communion. God, light a fire in my bones. I'm finding myself a deadness. I need a wakefulness. Confess that to him. What does Jesus say? Keep it in what? Repent, right? Return to him. And what does that look like? Prayer. Communion with him. That's what it looks like. So know that before anything, that that's what God's calling this church to. Gospel wakefulness in the heart by remembering his finished work, his grace, his love for you, his affection for you. And may his affection for you grow your affection for him. That's where it starts. Now, Jesus goes, warnings, promises here. Okay, like he does in every single letter. First, let's start with the warnings. If you will not wake up, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The contrast could not be more bolder here. When we confess Christ before men, he confesses us. When we hide, when we're ashamed, when we don't confess him, when personal belief doesn't translate into public identity. If you will not embrace me in a way that leads to identifying with me, I will come against you like a thief in the night. And here Jesus mercifully seeks to help the church in Sardis understand. Remember, what's the heart of warnings? The heart of warnings is what? To lead us back to Christ. So the heart of a warning is grace. It is love. He's trying to push them away from their deadness. He's trying to drive us back to Christ so that we can there Grow in our affection for him. He helps this church understand that his coming against them like a thief is going to be worse than anything they might be avoiding by not confessing him. Listen, Sardis, you're avoiding a ton of persecution and a ton of difficulty by not confessing me. And that's hard. I know that. But I'm telling you this. I'm going to come against you like a thief. And what you're going to face here on this earth isn't going to compare to that. Wake up from your deadness. Wake up. Where I'm going to come and wake you up in the middle of the night like a thief in judgment. And it's going to be too late. Too late. Some of you are scared to death to trust in Christ because of the implications socially, familially, and relationally. Take this warning. Hear Jesus contending with your fear. He's loving you right now. And may this warning drive you to trust in Christ and to come into a vibrant relationship with him. And as you see Jesus and his greatness and his glory, may all the opinions of all these other people around you that you fear so much just fade into the background. I'm with Christ because he's awesome. Because he's loved me and died for me and rose again. That's how it works. 
And this warning here, may it be a catalyst for those who have been suppressing the truth of the gospel. May this warning move you from your cowardness and your deadness to wake up. Now, we have some promises here too, don't we? Warnings drive, promises woo. They draw us. Warnings drive us to repentance in Christ. Promises draw us to his heart. Here's the promises. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. Right? There's still a few people who are, are worthy. They, they do proclaim me. Yet you still have a few names. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. There are a few in Sardis who are wide awake. A few who were trusting in Christ. Identifying with him. Coming out with that. They haven't soiled their garments. They haven't peed their pants in the face of persecution. Okay? It doesn't mean that, but it preaches well. Okay? Soil here has this idea of defilement. They haven't defiled me. They haven't been defiled in their suppression, in their cowardice. They haven't been defiled by their shame towards the gospel. They're worthy, and because of that, they'll walk with me in white. They're proving that they're truly rooted in the gospel in their public identification, and they will walk with me in the future because they don't have a problem telling people that they walk with me now. They will walk with me then, Because they don't have a problem telling people that they walk with me now. This is the fruit of gospel wakefulness here. This doesn't earn this for us. This is the fruit. And we will walk with him then, dressed in white. We will walk with him then, dressed in white. So quit hiding that you walk with him now in the dark. Next promise. To the one who conquers, he'll be clothed thus in white garments. Again, how does conquering happen? By faith in Christ. He does the conquering. He has the victory. Our faith attaches that, attaches us to his victory. A kind of faith that remains and perseveres. To those who stand with me in this life. To those who set themselves apart and declare their faith in me. I will set you apart even more in the future. To those who set themselves apart from family, from friends from co-workers, and come out of that fear. Those who set themselves apart, I will set you apart even more. I will clothe you in white garments. Purity, radiance, holiness. Not soiled garments, white garments. Again, who clothes us? Do we put on these garments? Did we make these clothes? No, what does the text say? I will clothe him. I'm going to do this work. This is something I do. This is a work of God's grace. Not a work. This isn't our achievement. This isn't our strong faith. This is us acknowledging us that we're weak. We tie our hearts to the gospel. God grows our affection. And the fruit of that is we proclaim him. That's how this works. We're not earning anything here. Jesus is doing this. I love this next one. And we're going to end with this. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. If you publicly identify with me. Now I mentioned earlier that this church was struggling from first century Judaism. And coming out from that. Separating themselves from that. And how hard it would have been for some Jews to publicly identify with Christ. This promise directly relates to that. So back in this time, there was something known as the curse of the Menim. And so back then, if you were a first century Jew, and you came out from Judaism and professed Christ, basically there was a curse laid on you. A curse. And the curse went like this. And may Nazarim, Nazarim is a, is a reference to the Nazarene. They called, Jews called uh, Christians the sect of the Nazarene. Look at what, he, look what, look at what the, uh, the Jewish curse was for those who went away from first century Judaism and trusted in Christ. And may Nazarim and Menim, Menim was this old rabbi who was a heretic, and may the heretics instantly perish, may they be blotted from the book of the living. 
Can you imagine if you grew up first century Judaism, heard the truth of the gospel, trusted, and to come out with that? Can you imagine this curse hanging over your head? Can you imagine that being what was spoken to you and about you? How comforting. How comforting for those in Sardis to hear from Jesus that if you conquer, if you keep my gospel, if you trust in me, if you identify with me, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. That curse is not going to stick. It's false. Is this your situation? Do you have a similar situation? If you profess Christ, you're going to get pushed away, shunned, marginalized. Friends, family, peers, co-workers. Jesus says to you in this promise, they might reject you, but I never will. They might reject you, but I never will. They might shun you. They might marginalize you, but I will never leave you and never forsake you. Your name's never going to be blotted out of the book of life. Can you imagine how emboldening this truth would have been for those who fear that pressure? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine their hearts just swell up in this moment? And Jesus is not intending to say that you can have your name be blotted out of the book of life. I was always confused by this verse. I was always confused by it. You know, like, oh, my name can be blotted out of the book of life. It makes sense in its cultural context. He's reassuring their fearful hearts in the face of this lie that God will not reject them if they identify with Christ. But I always was confused. I can get my name blotted out. Revelation 17, 8 says that our names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Guess what? You didn't do anything to get your name written in the book. You can't do anything to get it out. Because why? Because salvation is by grace. That's why. It's not by works. Your name was written in there before time began. You didn't do a single thing to get in there. And you can't do a single thing in this life to get it out. That's God's grace. But, amen. So see that promise in light of those who are suffering under this lie. That if you identify with Christ, if you trust in Christ, you're going to be rejected. And Jesus says to us in the gospel, in his new covenant promise, I will be your God and you'll be my people. I will remember your sins no more. And I will never leave you and never forsake you. I will never, ever reject you. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. And there is no greater joy than to know that Jesus is for us, that he will confess us. Don't fear their rejection, Sardis. I will confess you because I've loved you, died for you, rose for you, because I accept you by my grace, because you're in the book of life, because I confess you. Remember that and confess me. Don't be afraid. Testify. Wake up, witnesses. Wake up. Wake up, witnesses. He is coming. He is coming. And I want to walk with him in white. I want to hear him say my name before the Father. And I know you do too. So let's wake up. Let's take these gospel promises. Let's take this grace. Let's take this powerful gospel. Let's hold tight to it. Let's remember it. And let's be emboldened to tell others about him so that they can walk with him in white one day and so that their name might be said by Jesus to the Father too. And may that truth empower us to jump out of our fear, to jump out of our cowering, to wake up and to engage this world, to engage our workplaces, to engage the places where we live, work, and play with the gospel, with conversation about Christ, so that they too will know the joy of being known and knowing Jesus too. Let's pray.